I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm so delighted to be sitting across from Susanna Kahalen. She is the award-winning New York Times bestselling author of Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness, a memoir about her struggle with a rare autoimmune disease of the brain. And her second and most recent book is called The Great Pretender. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I have to say before we begin, you have been so wonderful to this book, and I just want to thank you for your support. Well, thank you for writing it. <laughs> so there you go. Oh, it's best. <laughs> I mean, and so usually I I like to just talk to authors about their m- most current book, but I feel like Great Pretender is so tied into your experiences from Brain on Fire that maybe you want to go back and, and give us a, a little run through. Sure. Um, yeah. You yeah, know, I definitely came. I mean, there is a conversation between Brain on Fire, my memoir, and this book that I mean. I am in both books, and right. and which, which honestly wasn't intention. I didn't want that to happen. Um, oh, but it added. It had something. to. It had to. I, had had to. I, I tried writing without it, and I just couldn't find. I couldn't find the voice, and I just kept referring back to my own experiences. So, um, and you had you have such a unique experience right. to come in and you witness firsthand how the medical establishment treats people with physical illnesses versus what are described as mental illnesses. Exactly. So like that personal place I felt like was necessary in terms of moving forward to talk more generally about the field. Yeah. So yeah, so in 2009, um, which this whole thing was chronicled in my memoir, I I had um, a rare autoimmune disease that attacked my brain, but um, was initially misdiagnosed as a serious mental illness, initially um, bipolar disorder, and then as my psychosis intensified schizoaffective disorder. So, I mean, I experienced hallucinations, delusions, paranoia, you know, the whole grab bag of of really wonderful Yeah, fun <laughs> things, things, fun things. Yeah, right. And then there was a shift in the way you were treated. Yes, absolutely. So the minute the, minute the proper diagnosis, which was confirmed via um, a spinal tap, mm-hmm. kind of was delivered, the whole – 
feeling surrounding the people who were taking care of me just totally switched. I mean, and I was only in for a month, so I didn't experience right, right. that. I didn't experience it for that long, but it was palpable. And my parents felt it too. Um, and in fact, I'm kind of feeling it by proxy because I don't remember a good deal of that time. Sure. Um, so a lot of it is even kind of in the words used in my medical records. It's how my parents were treated, you know. Give me some specifics. I mean, you know, there was a constant kind of threat woven throughout my medical records where um, there was these just three, three words, transfer to psych. And it kept showing up in my medical records as my psychosis was intensifying. And there were even small kind of judgmental things that, right, that showed right. up. Um, one of them was uh, I, I wore a white T-shirt and black yeah, leggings. Yeah. And that was early on in my hospitalization when I was probably entering into the mo most acute psychosis part of this, you know, the symptoms that I was presenting. And um, the psychiatrist documented what I was wearing, calling it revealing. And as it was proof <laughs> of her bipolar one um, diagnosis, which has a subset of hypersexuality as one of the symptoms. So it was just, it's- White t-shirt. White t-shirt, leggings. I mean, I wear that. That's kind of what I wear every day. Yeah. You know, this was not yeah. anything exceptional at all. Um, but what happened was she was seeing me through the prism of the of the mental illness label that she had applied. And she was and anything that she could see that could fit, you know, that label, she would include in that in her records. And so they're like psychiatrists are like detectives, like trying to put all of the clues together to make the thing to solve the thing. Exactly. That's but it's not put, yeah. solvable. <laughs> in, in some ways, yeah. I mean, and in some ways you can't really blame the psychiatrist right. for seeing that because right. on paper it made sense. You know, I was psychotic yeah. and um I it came out of the blue and probably, you know, had this not been 2009 but was 2005, she would have been correct. Right. You know, so I don't really – I understand that they are like detectives. It's actually perfectly put. And detectives make mistakes. They're human beings. And sometimes they see people through bias. Yes. And doctors have the same – have that same relationship with patients too. And and even the, the people who work in hospitals and any institutional place um, has to – compose a narrative kind of. About Absolutely. And medicine's all about narratives. Right. And I don't think I fully understood that. Um, I, I, under, you know, I really kind of thought about that with Brain on Fire, but ultimately I got this kind of magic bullet answer, this perfect, right. you know. You, you, you were the one of the rare people who you had a diagnosis and then you had a plan right. and now here you are. Sick, better, you know. And right. That, what I didn't realize when I wrote that book was I knew I knew it was an exceptional story, but I didn't realize how exceptional it was until yeah. I started to dive into other people's stories and, and the kind of history of psychiatry, the history of understanding the question, what is mental illness? This podcast is brought to you by Catapult, publishers of Rough Magic by Laura Pryor Palmer. If you like your memoirs to revolve around singular experiences, Laura Pryor Palmer's Rough Magic delivers. That's what the New York Times said about Rough Magic, the extraordinary true story of one young woman's experience riding what's billed as the world's longest and toughest horse race. This book will transport you out of your house to the grasslands of Mongolia, where a 19-year-old woman is tearing through the countryside on a wild horse, plowing through illnesses, dehydration, and exhaustion, armed with only a backpack full of snacks, an extremely limited understanding of Mongolian vocabulary, 
and a weathered copy of Shakespeare's The Tempest, the play that inspired this memoir's title. It's one of those rare memoirs like Wild or Educated, where the writing is as incredible and unique as the story. And it's not to be missed, especially now that it's out in paperback. Rough Magic by Lara Pryor Palmer, out now from Catapult. You even write in the book about how you've gone and done talks yeah. and um, just you stand for everything that medicine can do. Yes, yes, yes. And That's it was, a lot of pressure. In a way, yes. And I, I started to understand what happened to me in a different way. I mean, I think it is my, my illness, my you know, uh, recovery is proof that we have advanced in some kind of exceptional ways. But what I started to realize was that's not the only narrative and that medicine does not follow follow a linear path of progress. Right. I got caught in up into forces that were larger than me and 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 kind of washed me to the right shore and right. I, got, I got the answer that I was seeking, but most people don't. Most people don't. No. And so how did you get to this point where you decided my second book is going to be about this experiment mm -hmm. and these seven quote unquote sane people who who get themselves committed? Yes. So it, again, the, kind of furthering from that personal place after Brain on Fire came out, I started lecturing widely yeah. about my condition and interface a lot with psychiatry. And one time I was at a psychiatric hospital in North Carolina and um, after I you know, I would just talk about what happened to me to a room full of doctors. One came up to me and said, I think we have someone here who had what you had. Right. Yes. And I call, I kind of call her my mirror image because I did find out she was diagnosed with autoimmune encephalitis, which is the disease I had. But she went misdiagnosed with schizophrenia for two years. And um, the assault on her brain was was too much. And she would never recover as I had and would operate the rest of her life as a permanent child, which were his, his words. Ugh. So the stakes are so high. Right. You know, and it, it, it angered me. Of course uh, I was did. angry. I was also kind of confused about what are these terms that we're using that can derail someone's treatment? Yeah. And, and what do they mean? Where, where is solid ground here? And I was talking about uh, this, this mirror image with two neuroscientists um, at Harvard, at, at, out of Harvard, who went to a book reading that I attended. It's kind of this wonderful- I love that. Yeah. What a network of it. Yeah, I knew. I would never, as a tabloid news reporter, and yeah, I was just at the New York Post, I never thought I'd be saying these words. <laughs> but, I mean, that's been one of the joys of writing um, The Great Pretender is I've been able to talk to some really just remarkable yeah. people. Um, but I mentioned this woman, and one of them said to me- Oh, you you two are like modern day pseudo patients. Yeah, and I had no idea what she meant by that. And she kind of explained a little bit about it. And that night, I went home and Googled. Uh, she actually sent me the study um, on being sane in insane places, which was uh, written by Stanford professor David Rosenhan and published in Science in 1973. And then I lost six years of my life. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. But how did you connect with his? I mean, so you got a treasure trove, basically, yes, yes. Of, of, of stuff yes, from him. I did. You know, he passed away in 2012, yeah. which was a, the year Brain on Fire came out, but also a year after I started, a year before I started working on this. So I wasn't going to be able to talk to him directly. Right. But when I read the study, which is, you know, these eight people went undercover in psychiatric, 
psychiatric institutions across the country. They all supposedly presented with just one symptom. I hear a voice Voice. that says thud, empty or hollow. And just based on that, um, most were diagnosed with schizophrenia, one with manic depression. So, I mean, the idea of misdiagnosis was like really interesting to me. And then there were also the other things that he describes. It reads like fiction. (laughs) The the study. No spoilers. Yeah, no spoilers here, (laughs) but it's beautifully written. I mean, even the first line, like, if sanity and insanity exist, how shall we know them? Published in Science Journal, which is, you know, one of the premier academic journals of very, for lack of a better word, like highfalutin, you know, like really difficult studies I would not be able to read and understand. But there was this, there was this beautiful study, so neatly arranged and understandable and beautifully written and philosophical. Philosophical, exactly. It was there was some it was sexy, you know, like it was sexy. sexy. There was one point. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. David Rosenham. But at one point he tells a hospital who kind of – this doctor from a hospital said this would never happen here. We would immediately identify them as fakers. And so he said, okay, with three months, I'm going to send pseudopatients. The doctor reports back that 40 – he found 41 with, with relatively high certainty that they might be pseudopatients. And uh, David Rosenham tells him, I, I didn't, didn't send one. I mean, how – it's just great. I mean, it shows this nimble mind at work. So I became fascinated by David Rosenhan and um, determined to learn more about the study and him and the other people that he right. somehow managed to convince to. How did he do that? You know, it was wild. It's, I feel like it's a, such a trope in, like, dramas yeah. that, like, you get – committed and you I, yeah. I, it's just it's one of the worst nightmares you can have yeah like, like wrongfully accused of a crime slash wrongfully accused of being insane i mean yes. it's these are these and then are, and proving sanity right how like, do you prove yourself because everything that you do becomes further proof of your insanity i mean these are yeah he did really kind of pinpoint one of these deep fears that i think humanity has wrestled with for a good deal of the, you know when we've re- been able to write right words. You know, we've yes. kind of grappled with these these issues. And the study encapsulated it and also gave it some data. And it was published in science. It gave it you know, kind of legitimacy and proof. And right. any, so I went down this rabbit hole and I was able to find um, his unpublished book, his yes. diary entries, and then, diary entries, which are fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, eight bankers boxes worth of letters that he wrote throughout his career. He was a beautiful letter writer. So I didn't get to talk to him directly, but I really got access to his mind yeah. through his writing. Yeah. And then you got access to these other people who are unnamed in the in the science article. Right. So and what I started there was, okay, I, David Rosenhan, his experience, there were some fascinating details and he really came alive off the page. He was a pseudo patient. Right. And he went undercover at Haverford State Hospital for nine days. And it, it most of the study actually revolves around his time. And, you know, he describes how at one point he was writing in the day room. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, this writing actually showed up in his medical record as signs of writing behavior, which was signs of his insanity or signs of his schizophrenia diagnosis. And um, one time he was sitting and writing, an attendant came up and, right. and started talking to him. And this was the first time any of the staff had really identified him as a human. You know, everyone else yes. kind of never looked at him in the eye, made him strip with the door open. They didn't have, you know, st- you know, bathroom doors on the, uh, on, you know. It was just, he was depersonalized. And this attendant started talking to him and they had this wonderful conversation kind of gossiping about everyone on the ward who was 
in for what and which doctors were good and bad. And at one point, he they noticed that the nurses the are nurses, laughing. Yeah. And he realizes later that um, the attendant had actually mistaken him for, for a doctor. And that was the only reason he was talking to him. I mean, moments like these, you can – I mean, they're just magical. So – but the problem was as I started to – dig into his experience, I started to find some issues um, mm -hmm. and started to find some inconsistencies, which um, made me kind of find – make it more important to kind of find the other people involved right. in this study. I also right. was fascinated with why and how did he convince them. Right. But um, I became obsessed with this. And in fact, the kind of the first – I still, you know, you sell on, you know, a proposal. And mm -hmm. I sold this book as Committed, Not the Great Pretender. Oh, right. Right. That makes sense. Yes, to me. because I was celebrating explain this the, at it. Yeah. Explain the title a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's, it has multiple, multiple meanings here. Yeah. So the great pretender has three meanings. The first meaning is the great pretender is actually a class of illnesses like the one that, that hit me. Right. Um, uh, which they are kind of known as illnesses that masquerade as something else. Right. And in my case, an illness that masquerades as a psychiatric condition, but as a quote unquote neurological condition, which, you know, these dichotomies I think are very outdated and primitive, but um, that's where the origins of the word, the great pretender comes from. Right. Um, and then there was the kind of more obvious uh, choice of the word, the great pretender, which is, you know, David Rosenhan and these seven other people pretended to be patients. Yes. And they're pretending. And then as I started to peel back the layers of this study and really started to investigate it, because the book in many ways became this journalistic odyssey I did not anticipate. Sure. It, you know, it being the thrux of the book, the great pretender started to take on a kind of more complex meaning in a way. Yes. Yeah, yes. We won't – we don't have to go further than that. <laughs> um, I also – let's go back because – before Rosenhan, Nellie Bly yes. did, did something yes. similar. I have to say I love Nellie Bly. I always have adored Nellie Bly. Um, and there have been some great books about her kind of um, race around the world. Yes. And I mean, I just, just she's just so wonderful and, and just smart and aggressive mm -hmm. and, uh, and and ambitious. And, and just I just really very much admire Nellie Bly. And I always knew that she went undercover in a psychiatric in a psychiatric hospital, an asylum actually. But I didn't really know the extent to which like what she actually did until I started to read about her hospitalization. And there were some kind of great books that talked about what it was like on Blackwell Island, which is where she went undercover, which is now Roosevelt Island. Which is just wild to me that yeah. it's just right there. It's right there. And I, I drive right there. by it at the FDR. I'm like this is this is where this she is, was, and it's. I think about her. She, she took this kind of ferry over to the island, and what she must. She was 24 years old, and the New York world, a tabloid in the city, you know, kind of just sent her there. And this was, a, you know, Dickens had visited the island and right, wanted off yes. immediately. And <laughs> I was so horrified when I read the New York Times piece saying that Dickens wa tried to get yes. his wife committed because he Cause wanted he to knew. have an affair with an actress. Because he, he knew how bad it was. So this that was horrifying That's... when I heard that because I love Dickens. Was, yeah. yeah. Another problematic Why? fave. So yes. many of our faves. Seriously. But so Nellie went... Um, undercover uh, for 10 days in Blackwell Island. And what she saw there was uh, horrific. I mean, the minute she she landed, she was thrown into a bathtub that was filled with human waste and dead vermin, where she was basically waterboarded. And that was just the beginning. Uh, she saw, she heard and saw patients beaten. Uh, one was beaten to death. 
And she saw women there who were in for various reasons. One, because they didn't speak English. Mm. And the average stay there hovered between 10 and 20 years at the time. She was really putting her life on the line um, for this story. And uh, she describes that she described it as a human rat trap. Once you get in, it's you, know, you can't get out. And she, luckily, she got taken out by a lawyer because she probably would have spent a good deal of time there. I mean, I I was also fascinated by all the precautions that all of these pretenders had to take yeah. before going in because. Yeah, you need that lifeline on the yeah. outside. I mean, she I just can't imagine with her specifically. Yeah. Which which also she kind of illuminated a little bit what some of these other the the pretenders that I talk about because some of them were around her age too. They were students. And I you know, this was a different time. You know, this you know, Nellie Bly went in in the, you know, 1870s. Right. The pretenders went in in between 69 and 71 approximately. But um, so it's a different time, but dealing with a lot, grappling with many of the same issues, maybe not as they, they weren't people who were not in for 10 and 20 years in the same way. Patients were still beaten, you know, there was still terrible conditions. So, you know, the, there was a conversation with, the with, with, you know, the time 100 years before. Yeah. And, and I think we just like to think that medicine always advances yeah. and the asylums are gone. Yeah. And so... But but the diagnosis of a mental illness ruin can ruin a person's life yeah. very easily, and it's also there's so much we don't know. Yeah, you know, that was yeah. that was the shocking part, and it wasn't. It's not just psychiatry. I mean, I focus on psychiatry in the right. book, but I really went through a tour of what we don't know in medicine. We don't know how how like Advil works. We don't know right. how right. You know, um, like. We don't know what causes Alzheimer's. We don't know. You know, we don't know what causes dementia. We don't know what causes sudden infant death syndrome. I mean, there's so the list of what we don't know far outweighs what we do. And uh, coming from Brain on Fire, where I felt that we had figured this whole thing right, out, right, right, right. It was an education for me in many ways. Um, tell me what you've been reading now that you're not reading old diaries yes. <laughs> and letters anymore. I'm still on the kind of path of. I can't get myself away from this path in yeah. a way, but um, there are two two books I've read recently that I've read multiple times. One of them was Esme Wang's Collected Schizophrenia. I'm you're. I have met you her. spoken to her? Okay, good. I actually wrote her a fan letter. Okay, good. And um, met her when I was in San Francisco very briefly, and she's amazing. I mean, this book is phenomenal, and I, and I'm bizarrely in it. So I'm reading it. And I'm like, I'm being seen. She understands, and then she literally writes about Brain on Fire, and right. it was this. So I had to write her, and, and there were so many overlapping things that happened between there, this and and her experience. And she's phenomenal. She I, I've phenomenal. never seen anyone anyone write the way she has about these issues in such with such clarity and elegance. And just I love that book. Um, on, on another side of things, yes. which are kind of not related to this, is I read Sigrid Nunez Nunez is the friend. Yes, for the first time a month or two ago, and I'm still. Have you, is this something you've read? Have you read this? Uh, I mean, it's it's got all my main things. Yes. Like <laughs> men behaving badly, dogs. Yes. I know. It's just, publishing. Did you love it? I loved it. Of course I, I loved it. Okay, good. Yeah. I, was, <laughs> I love this book so much. I mean, I know this is not necessarily a – well, it's, I mean, kind of new, right? I, I, I don't know. I think know. anytime you have a good book recommendation, oh, it's, it's just best to let it fly. I <laughs> love this book so deeply. It was – it's just – I – it was anyway. These are those are the two that have been on my mind. I haven't been reading as much as I 
as I want well, to. You've been but, on tour. Yeah, I know it's hard to read on tour for some reason. Yeah, but but those two really just really right, right in the heart. So, well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review, and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 